I want to welcome all of you, all of you, every single one of you, to the worship of God. And I want to say to you that you have been made to be here. You may not think this way, but this is where you belong. You belong here more than you belong at the breakfast table. You belong here more than you belong in bed with your wife. You belong here more than you belong out in the snow looking at the beauty of God's creation. Because here in this place, we have the wonderful combination of general revelation, people, flesh and blood, seeds and snow and cold and rain and heat, but also special revelation, the very word of God. Don't despise the word, but now as we come to our time of studying it, receive it as a gift from God. It seems foolish to think such a thing about a book with words, but God has been pleased to speak to us not just through nature, but also through his own word. And so you are here to hear his word, and it's my privilege to serve you by preaching it to you. Please open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 22. We'll read beginning with verse 23. Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 23. And by the way, as you sit there, if you think that you're a wicked sinner, and this is a place of holiness, what you don't see is that every person sitting next to you is a wicked sinner. I know it because often you confess your sins to me. So don't think that you stand out like a sore thumb. You don't. You fit in perfectly like a hand in a glove. And every week when we come here, we come here burdened with our sins, but hearing of the righteousness of Christ. Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. When we hear the word skeptic, what is it that immediately comes to our mind? If we refer to someone as a skeptic, what are we saying about them? Sometimes we use the word in an informal sense simply to refer to the fact that it's hard to get that particular person to be enthusiastic about anything. In this sense, the word skeptic is just another word for someone who we might refer to as a stick in the mud or a party pooper. He's a skeptic. Nothing good is ever going to happen. But properly defining it, skepticism, Webster says this about it, is an attitude of doubt 
or a disposition to incredulity either in general or toward a particular object. Doubt concerning basic religious principles as, and if you were to guess there, what would you guess? What's the principle? Well, obviously, Webster is going to define it the way we do. The first principle that everybody doubts is what? Immortality. So again, doubt concerning basic religious principles as immortality and then providence and revelation. So a skeptic doesn't believe that we live after we die. And a skeptic does not believe that God is the one that made us and not we ourselves. And a skeptic does not believe in revelation. So a skeptic looks at this book and says, I have a different presuppositional basis and I don't believe the words of those books. You're going to have to talk to me on my own terms. All right. Skeptic literally means one who thinks for himself and does not believe on another's testimony. And so speaking precisely in theology, the study of God, those who do not accept revelation. And there are many people across the centuries who have been known as skeptics. Probably the greatest one America's ever produced is Thomas Paine, but I'm going to say it's Mark Twain. Mark Twain was a skeptic, and it's made more poignant by the fact that Mark Twain's wife was a Christian. So every time Mark Twain defies the faith of a Christian, Mark Twain is in opposition to the one he is one with, to his wife. Another one, maybe one of the best known in the past couple of centuries, is a writer named George Bernard Shaw. All of you know him from writing... Pygmalion, which is my fair lady. George Bernard Shaw was a skeptic. George Bernard Shaw had a very close friend named G.K. Chesterton. And I have in my library a book that's an autobiography of G.K. Chesterton, who was a believer. And in that book, there are a bunch of pictures. And one of the pictures, my favorite one, has a bunch of men standing in a fence dressed up like cowboys. And one of them is G.K. Chesterton, and it doesn't work. If you know anything about Chesterton, it wouldn't work, all right? But there's this little rat think, tiny, skinny, sort of angular, and you can understand why he's a skeptic. He's, he, he's, he's small among men, and that's George Bernard Shaw. They're there in front of the fence being cowboys. So this man, George Bernard Shaw, had a number of things to say about his lack of faith. But first, let's hear Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, I am a millionaire and that is my religion. He also said, whoever has lived long enough to find out what life is knows how deep a gratitude, a debt of gratitude, we owe to Adam, the first great benefactor of our race. He brought death into the world. I guess you know where he's coming from. George Bernard Shaw says, he who has never hoped can never despair. So Shaw is saying, if we never look forward to anything, we'll never be disappointed. And of course, when he says this, he's not just speaking of things in this life. Usually the first doubt of a skeptic is the doubt of the existence of any life after death. Will we really live again? Now, I know that Mark Twain and George Bernard Shaw, Thomas Paine, are not alone in their doubts. And most likely today, there are many who have this same question about whether a man does live again. 
Is there life after death? When you're a pastor, you get paid to do things that are absolutely a delight. One of them is to study the Bible. You actually get paid to do that. It didn't hit me until I graduated from seminary and went into my first church and was sitting at my desk, surrounded by books, studying the Bible, and I thought, this is a dream come true. I get paid to do this. One of the things you get paid to do, which is a great delight, is to be present and to serve families that are grieving the passing of a loved one. One of my favorite times in the ministry is next to a grave. And to be able to lead a family and loved ones through the prayer book service of the committal of a body to the ground. If I had my way, we would not have gravediggers unions which bar the family from helping to put the soil on top of the casket after it's lowered. Some of you know that when my father died, I asked the funeral director if I could put some soil on top of the casket. I didn't want to pay somebody to start that job. I wanted to do it myself. It was the most painful moment of my life. And to me, it seemed right that I would enter into it by helping to bury him. So you're standing next to the grave, and here the loved one is being planted, being sown in the ground. And what a wonderful privilege it is to stand there next to the grave, and every time I use these words... The service begins this way. Man that is born of a woman has but a short time to live and is full of trouble. He comes up and is cut down like a flower. He flees like a shadow and never continues in one place. In the midst of life, we are in death. And of whom may we seek for relief, but of thee, O Lord, who for our sins art justly displeased. Isn't that wonderful? You say, what kind of a twisted sister is up there telling me he loves doing this? And what I'll tell you is because finally the truth has come out. Finally, the truth can come out. I've told some of you I'd rather do I'd rather do 10 funerals, 20, 30, 100 than one wedding. Why? Well, because at weddings we lie. Now, I'm not a cynic. I do believe there is love. I believe that the most precious gift I've been given in my life is my wife. But we do lie at weddings. We act as if the more money we spend and the prettier we dress things up, the more truth there is there. And man, anybody who's been married one day who sits at a wedding has tears coming out of their eyes, and they aren't tears of joy. (laughs) Those tears are facing the reality of what this sweet young couple is about to hit. And it's hard. Have you ever cried at a birth? You always cry at a birth. Why? Pinder, the Greek poet, said that the, the, the grieving and the wails of death are mingled with the cries of the newborn at birth. And the reason, again, is because at birth you think of what 
will face this little child. Comes into the world, has absolutely no idea what they're about to hit. In the midst of life, we live in death. Now, America is a great conspiracy, and I'd say beyond America, I'd say the entire Western world is a great conspiracy to deny that truth. And most people would say that any man that gives testimony that way is a liar and a fool and an idiot. Because why? Well, because we've hired professionals to handle, to handle. You know what handling is, right? Handling is what somebody has completely failed to do with Britney Spears. You know, famous people are supposed to have handlers. Nobody's handling her. And so her death is visible for the whole world to see. The whole purpose of a handler is to hide the death. And so we hire doctors, and if death ever occurs, the doctors feel they've failed. Because in the midst of life, we live in life. And of whom do we need to seek relief from? And so we hire doctors and we put dying people in hospitals. And then in the hospital, we put them behind closed doors. And then as they get closer to death, we put them behind closed doors that can't even be opened to us because we only get to visit every five or ten minutes out of an hour. You know, and out of every three or four hours, half an hour, and only a few of us. And so death is what? Well, it's pushed completely away. Somebody dies in a traffic accident. A good EMS tech immediately will take, what? A sheet, cover the body, put it out of our sight. And so the entire Western world is a conspiracy to deny death. And it isn't just limited to human bodies. It also extends to all of the testimonies to death that we see around us. On my way over here, right, I drove on Tap Road... Right? And I think as I drive on Tap Road, for heaven's sakes, who's not doing their job? That possum has been there for three days now. (laughs) Who's not handling death? I don't know who it is, but apparently somebody gets paid by the city to go around and take away death. So that when it sits there for three days, you notice somebody isn't doing their job. And that's what our life is. Our life is the denial of death. You've got all these people out running. What do you think somebody from the colonial times would think coming into a town like this and seeing women who are 45 jogging down the road? They'd think, there's something I don't understand. And then we'd say to them, yes, we have an idolatry which is of the human body. We believe that if we run at 45 that we won't die. I'll never forget a few years ago, the principal advocate of jogging died suddenly. I think while he was, was it while he was on, while he was jogging, what was the guy's name? Huh? But I know Jim and he's still living. Oh, a different Jim, because he's a cardiologist. I'm depending on him someday. (laughs) I'm depending on him to fix me. Okay, so Jim Fix dies, 
And do you know what the New York Times did? Sunday Magazine. They had a long article talking about how it wasn't his running that killed him. Actually, his running postponed his death. He had bad genetics, and he would have died earlier if he hadn't been running. So all of you should run because it will postpone death. So the very death of Jim Fix, right, as he's jogging, right, is used to make the point that it actually put off death. Nobody even stopped for a moment to look at these man who died. What was he, 40, 40, 45? Yeah, that's what I kind of remember. It was what, like 25 years ago? About, yeah. Anybody else remember this? All right. Yeah, I am getting old. A few weeks ago, uh, I'm not going to be able to tell this. Uh, who told it at our family the other day? The Eric story. Who told that? Come on. Michael, where are you? Yeah, come on up and tell that story, would you please? We believe in having women speak in church. This is a great story. For those of you who are visiting, my aunt, who was 92, just died a couple weeks ago, and we just buried her and had the funeral service here. Oh, I'm sorry. We had the funeral service here um, a couple days ago. So we've been sitting around telling stories of my Annie Lane, who was with us until she died. So Michael's going to tell you one of these stories. Here, you know it's going to be easier if you just do that. And come on up. <laughs> so everybody can see your beautiful face. I'm sorry. This is twice in one week. All right. Um. <laughs> A few years ago, Eric Larson and his mother were living with my family, and Auntie Lane was still living at the time, obviously. And one evening, we were all upstairs eating dinner together, and my grandfather had gotten sick recently, and um, he was getting older. Um, and I don't remember exactly what had happened, but he had taken a turn for the worse, and it was... I don't know if he had been hospitalized or what, but um, my aunt got wind of this and immediately, for some reason, came to the conclusion that he was dead. So she kept asking mom and dad all through dinner, um, when are you going up to the funeral? And my mom and dad kept trying to correct her and say, you know, Kenneth Taylor, he's not dead. He's going to die, but he's not dead yet. So it kind of turned into a very comical conversation because we are repeatedly having to tell Auntie Lane that my grandfather is not dead yet. He's going to die, but he's not dead yet. And it started to sound like, you know, a Monty Python skit. So, um, I'm, you know, the guy yelling, I'm not dead yet, and they're trying to drag him out. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so we're all trying to keep a straight face but continue to assure her that he's not dead yet. Um, well, when my dad says, he's not dead yet, he's going to die, Eric must have been two or three, and you know how kids will just catch a phrase and just start repeating it over and over again. So he starts going, he's going to die, he's going to die, he's going to die, just over and over again. So Anne, his mother, was getting a little bit uncomfortable, I think, and, and she said, Eric... We're all going to die. And Eric's eyes just got huge. He goes, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. 
funny, funny, funny. <laughs> Just a few weeks ago, Annie Wayne was sitting at the at the at the uh, in the couch. We were having family devotions. We were uh, opening the Bible and beginning to read, and um, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, apropos to nothing, Annie Wayne looks at me and she says, "Are you going to cremate me?" <laughs> And, of course, everybody in my family does what you do, which is laugh. And I'm not supposed to laugh because I'm responsible. And so I look at her and I say, no. And she says, what? And I said, no. And she says, no what? I said, we're not going to. You're not going to what? I said, we're not going to cremate you. You're not going to what? I said, we're not going to cremate you. You're not going to cremate me? Well, I should hope not. <laughs> so here's, here's the point. The point is that in the midst of life, we do live in death. And skeptics are those who deny the significance of death and who deny the resurrection. Because why? Well, principally because they don't want to have hope because hope disappoints. And so the question comes to us all, are skeptics somehow uh, courageous and brave in a way that we aren't? Are the little people foolish? Because, you know, skeptics are always the big people. Do you understand what I mean? If you go to Scripture and you study in, in history the nature of the Sadducees, this group that came to Jesus in our text, they were the religious group that specialized in being superior to everyone. The Pharisees were the fundamentalists. The Sadducees were the sophisticated upper socioeconomic, upper education, skeptics. The way to remember who the Sadducees are is that they denied the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Okay? But they didn't just deny the resurrection. They also denied that there were angels. They denied the spirit. They denied the sovereignty and the providence of God. They denied even the Hellenistic concept of fate. What holds those things together? What, what holds them together is they denied anything that they were not sovereign over. Because, of course, if you're not going to hope, then everything has to come back to you. So skeptics are solipsists. Nobody exists but me. I'm it. Isn't that nice? And they just have to find a wife that's willing to go along with them. Now, do we have any difficulty recognizing the nature of skepticism in this community? No, we don't. Because by some perversion of the university, what started out was the search for God and his truth and based on his word has now become the search to kill God and to kill sovereignty of God, his provision, to deny death, to deny the resurrection, to deny anything that is not able to be reproduced in a laboratory. So, here's the question. The Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, 
Jesus here's this Old Testament law. You know it, and I'm not going to read it to you, but most of you know what the law was. The law was that if a man died and his wife was left childless, that her brothers were to go into her, into bed, and give her children. And if they were not able to give her children, then conceivably another brother could try after he died, right? Now, this one... This particular example that they bring to Jesus is obviously not a real example, right? Seven brothers. Now, how do we know it's not a real example? Well, we know it's not a real example because no one in their right mind, no one would be the seventh. If that woman has put one in the grave, two, I would not be willing to be the third. I certainly would not be willing to be the fourth. I would never be the fifth. Over my dead body would I be the sixth. Seven? I mean, who's going to marry Elizabeth Elliot if Lars Gren dies? I wouldn't. All right, that's a little inside joke. I'll come back. So here we have them presenting a situation to Jesus that is obviously set up to put him in a conflict where he has two choices. He can either be a man and admit there is no resurrection because after all, you can't have a woman married to seven men in heaven. And so obviously heaven is a construct put together for small people who think stupid thoughts and need something to hold on to in the tempest of this life, right? And we all recognize the type. Or Jesus can answer the question in such a way that makes it clear that he believes in the resurrection, in which case he's held up to ridicule to everybody listening. Because they recognize the conundrum, it's impossible, and anybody that has a doctrine or belief that requires this sort of conflict is an idiot, right? So how does Jesus respond? Well, here's what Jesus says. Excuse me. Jesus says to them this. He says, you are in error. Verse 29, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Do you know that if you count up all the things Jesus said in the New Testament in the Gospels, and you add up the proportion of what Jesus said that is the text of the Old Testament. In other words, you add up the proportion of Jesus' words that are simple quotations from the Scriptures. One-tenth of his words are simply quoting Scripture. Shame on us. Shame on us. We don't know Scripture, do we? So Jesus quotes scripture in here, and what does he say? He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if you take all of those words and you put them together, what is the word that's important? It's one word, and it has how many letters? 
It has two letters, I am. Not I was or I used to be, but I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And it's over. That's it. It's over. Jesus Christ right there handled the question that is at the foundation of the entire Western apparatus of learning. And Jesus answered it summarily, clearly, once and for all, I am the God of Jacob, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the God of Joseph Tate Bailey. He is the God of Kenneth Taylor. He is the God of Paul, of Peter, of John. He is the God of all the martyrs through time. He is the God of David and Solomon. He is the God of Rahab and of Esther. He is the God of the dead. He not was, not used to be. He is the God. Now, what at this point does a skeptic say? Do you remember he said that your errors are two, not knowing Scripture, but what's the second one? Nor the power of God. How do you know the power of God? What is given to you to know the power of God? So Annie Lane is dying. And we have a physician, a couple of them, and one of them is a member of this church, Adam. And we talk to Adam about keeping her at home. And we decide that Annie Lane's going to stay at home until she dies. Why? Because Mary Lee has always said that she wants to be there to usher her into heaven. We don't want it on the terms of the professionals. Officious people. And so Annie Lane proceeds to decay. Now some of you knew her. And you'd say she already was decayed. If you saw her sitting here on Sunday morning, she was a tiny midget of a woman. She never was tall. She was probably 4'10", maybe, under 5. We weighed her a couple of years ago. She was 63 pounds. And now she was dehydrated and emaciated. Her eyes were holes in her skull. And she's dying. So one day we go in there to read scripture to her and pray and sing because that's the food dying people need. And we go in and we read to her from the book of 1 Corinthians. You err not knowing scripture nor what? The power of God. So here's Annie Lane, and anybody that's inclined to deny that in the midst of life we live in death, next to that bed, it's clear that death is there. And here is the scripture that we read. If you'll open your Bibles, please, if you have them, and look with me at the book of 1 Corinthians 
The 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It just happened, I didn't choose this, it just happened that we had decided, (laughs) I'll be honest, months ago, that we were going to read 1 Corinthians. And so you see that we're not regular in our family devotions. Because you'd get through 1 Corinthians in half a month, right? It may not have been months ago, but it was at least a month and a half earlier, all right? So we get to 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm trying to say it was accidentally that we were here. It wasn't intentional. And we're reading through 1 Corinthians, and we come here. Verse 35, everybody see it. But someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? We're right next to her body. It's emaciated. But someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? And what does Paul say? Paul says, you fool. Isn't it nice to have a teacher so tactful, so careful to protect our dignity? You fool. (laughs) I love it. You come to the word, you have to die to your pride. Isn't that wonderful? You fool. I recognize myself when he says that to you. You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What is he saying there? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you idiot, have you never planted a seed? Have you never planted a seed? One of the great tragedies of technological society is that we don't ever plant seeds. Many of us have never planted a seed in our life. Some of us have only planted grass seed, which you plant and you forget about it and it gets green. Some of you have bought tomato plants, but you haven't planted them. You've bought them already sprouted. Some of you cucumber plants. What happens when you plant a seed? When you plant a seed, you put it in the soil, you cover it over with soil, And then either you water it or you hope the rain comes because the the water, the rain, does what? The water and the rain cause the seed to what? To rot. And as the seed rots, what happens? Well, the very thing that we call rotting is also called germination. And that seed sprouts. It dies and it sprouts and from it comes new life. And so here's what Paul's saying. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? If you've ever been with someone dying, you want to know what body will it be? Certainly it's not going to be this body. This body's awful. This body is smelling. It's emaciated. There's nothing about this body that's pretty. I don't want to go through eternity with this body. I don't want to know her in heaven with this body. What kind of body is she going to have? Paul says, you fool. And he says this. He says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In other words, have you never seen nature? Have you never planted a piece of corn? 
Have you never seen germination? Don't you know? That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Okay, so now we've moved behind, beyond the you fool into, okay, you want to talk bodies, let's talk bodies. All right? Each of the seeds, a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. And you're thinking, (laughs) you know, what are we doing here? We're going through taxonomy, you know? What is this? Flesh and birds and fish and... There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. Okay. What you plant in the ground and allow to decay is not what sprouts. You've got heavenly, you've got earthly. Okay, what comes out of the ground is prettier than what happens in the ground. There's not much pretty about a piece of corn. Okay, earthly, heavenly. Okay, somebody that dies, that's the earthly body. You see what he's saying? And then there's the heavenly body, right? Keep watching. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. And there Annie Lane is. She doesn't smell good. And she doesn't look good. And we read next to her bed, it is sown a perishable body. It's raised an imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You know what's wrong with George Bernard Shaw and Mark Twain? They can't see the nose on the end of their face. They have all around them the testimony to the resurrection of the dead and the life immortal. Every spring, these seeds have rotted. And out of the ground sprouts billions and billions and billions of obvious and reproducible testimony to the resurrection of the dead. It's all around you. If you hadn't ever seen a seed decay in the ground and produce new life, would you believe that it could happen? Not one of you, not any university professor of botany, not any agronomist, nobody would ever believe that it could happen. If you hadn't seen the sun rise in the morning, would you ever believe it could happen? Nobody, not a cosmologist, not an astronomer, nobody would ever believe that the sun could rise. God has surrounded us with testimony to spiritual truth. It's all around 
this. And we're so sophisticated that we can't see it. And we go on our way thinking that somehow we're superior to other men because we don't believe that it's possible for God to raise the dead. Because after all, none of us have ever seen somebody dead raised, but you've seen the seed sprout and produce new life. You've even seen that seed that sprouts and produces new life produce fruit. You have seen the Holy Spirit give you new life. And you have seen your disgusting life, vile, produce fruit. You have seen you, a despicable man, ask a woman to marry you. And she has said yes. And then she has allowed you to sire a child. And you have seen God in front of you produce a new human life. And world-weary and courageous enough to acknowledge the reality, we say, how shall the dead be raised and with what kind of body? You've taken your hand like I do, and you take it and you slip it, slip it underneath the back of the shirt of a little baby. And you rub the skin. And you think, I wish I had skin like that again. And their bottoms. And how shall the dead be raised? And with what kind of body will they have? The world screams the immortality of the soul and of the body. And oh, we're so sophisticated. Oh, we don't, we don't believe that kind of stuff, you know. Only what we can see and touch and taste and feel. And God takes your hand and slips it up the back of a little baby. And you say, with what kind of body will they have? My dear friends, there is the resurrection of the dead. And you are surrounded by evidence. And the question is, do you believe the evidence or don't you? You've got scripture. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Do you know why God gave us loved ones? I'm convinced. Because last night I'm sitting in the living room and everybody from my family is in the living room playing a game. By the way, a game about death. In the midst of life, we live in death. And to my left is my, my dear, dear mother-in-law, Margaret Taylor. And here in front of us is teeming life. And being the head of the household, <laughs> you know, some head, <laughs> you know, I'm looking out at my progeny. <laughs> you know, taking stock of the world. And yes, I am able to see beyond my own stomach as I do that. <laughs> and here I see child and son-in-law and daughter-in-law and future son-in-law and children. And the babies have been playing soccer earlier and there's been food and there are games and there's laughter and there's life just teeming. And I'm thinking what? I'm thinking, why do we have to die? Why can't we all come to life at the same moment and die at 
the same moment. Why do I have to die before my children die? I don't get it. I really don't. You know, why can't... And then I realize, and I really do think these things, I realize that God wants us to be cut, 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 cut. He wants us to be cut, cut, cut. Because as we're cut, and as we love the people who are staying after us, then what? (laughs) Our hearts are in heaven. We can't deny death. Even when we pay the doctors and nurses to take it from us, we can't deny it. And so they die, and you grieve them. And then you think, like Eric, we're all going to die. And you think, thank God that God is not forcing us to live in our pride and self-sufficiency, our university existence. Thank God that He takes pity on us and that He takes our loved ones from us so that we can't live without grief and death. So that we have constant testimonies in front of us that in the midst of life we live in death. And of whom may we seek of relief, O Lord, but of Thou who for our sins art justly displeased. Because, of course, death is sin. I thank God for death. What a gift. I thank God that someday I'm going to die. Because what a gift to my children. I hope it will be a gift for some of you. It will be a relief when you die. Your children will not be sad. Some of you... No one will grieve your passing. I've presided over funerals like that. It's, it's, it is so, so, so awful. We used to live behind the funeral home. The funeral director would call me up and say, we have somebody who's died. Would you come do the funeral? Nobody knew them. Nobody mourns them. There's no pastor, no church. Would you come and would you bury them? No, i do it. But... For most of us, there will be people in great, great grief when we do die. And they will have the privilege of being in the house of mourning. And at that moment, they too will think, and of whom may we seek for relief, but of thou, O Lord, who for our sins are justly displeased. Some of them will remember What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Some of them will never have known that they have a burden of sin until that time. And finally, death will bring them face to face with their sin. And at that moment, they will flee to the cross of Christ. Now, we have to stop. So what's the application of the Word of God that I'm proclaiming? What is it to you? To you. Okay, what is it? Well, okay, first, the application is, for heaven's sakes, for heaven's sakes, would you stop lying? Stop lying. Stop lying. 
is going to die. We're going to die. Don't lie. You right now are dying. A little child whose back is so soft and fuzzy is that moment dying. We're all dying. So don't lie. And if you will embrace death, if you'll stop trying to shove it out, stop trying to put blinders in front of your eyes, stop trying to professionalize and officialize, stop trying to cover it. If you'll look at death, it will help you see other truths that you've also been lying about. When you see death and you realize that you want a sheet over Aunt Elaine, Then you'll think, is it really her body that I want a sheet over? And you'll realize, no, it's not a body, it's sin. I want not to think about sin. I don't want to think about God's holiness. I don't want to think about judgment. Somebody help me. And death will have brought you to sin and to holiness. And it will have brought you to the cross. And there you'll stand in front of the cross of the Son of God. He had Absolutely no need to take on flesh, let alone death. And he certainly didn't need to go out with the most despicable death the Roman Empire had invented for the criminals. But he did not consider himself above taking on flesh. And he was humbling himself unto death, even the death on a cross. And as you look at that, you will see holiness, you will see judgment, and then if God is merciful to you, you will see the cross of Jesus Christ. And you will flee to the cross. You'll run to the cross of Christ. You'll see the blood dripping down, and you'll say, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's the gospel. There's not one person here that doesn't need the blood of Jesus Christ. You think, oh, they don't need it the way I do it. I say, they need it every bit the way you do. They need it more than you do. You say, oh, but you don't know my sin. I say, I know your sin. And you say, how do you know me? I've never taught you. I say, because I know myself. No temptation has taken you but what is common to man. In fact, the Bible even tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways like as we are yet without sin. Whatever sin you have, God has made a way, a way of righteousness, a way of cleansing, and the cleansing is the blood of Christ. You see how this works? You stop lying. And you say, we're all going to die. And then you've allowed yourself to see the holiness of God. And then you read about the judgment of God on sin. You see death. You see judgment. And then you allow yourself to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And then you hear Jesus saying, No temptation has taken you but which is common to man. You hear Jesus say, that he has been tempted in all ways like as you are and without sin. And then you see the Bible saying that he is lifted up. 
And that anyone who comes to him, he won't cast out. And guess what? Then you become a Christian. And I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to not despise the blood of Jesus Christ. I command you. Now you say, how can you command me? I've never asked you to be my boss. And I say, never is the word of God preached. Never. In authority. That there is not an imperative. And the imperative here today is, you come to Jesus. And you say, oh man, I'm old. I've spent my entire life rejecting Jesus Christ. I refuse. Can you imagine the laughing stock I would be when I spent my whole life being a skeptic, identifying with Mark Twain and George Bernard Shaw? Now I'm supposed to humble myself. I say, well, it would have been good if you'd done it when you were a kid. Or at least in middle age. But if you're old and you've never humbled yourself and come to the cross, now's the time to do it. Because in the midst of life, we live in death. And this death testifies to you, if you don't come to Christ, that when you get done with crossing the Great Divide, if you drove here, you saw a huge pile of trees and branches and twigs. It stands maybe 12 feet tall. It's probably 30 feet wide. And do you know what we're going to do pretty soon? We will burn it. So do you understand what I'm saying? I'm loving you and I'm saying to you that there is life after death. And there are two options. One option is that you are the seed that sprouts and that is fruitful by the grace of Jesus Christ. You are reborn, born again by the Spirit of God in faith in that cross and that blood. Or you are the branch which will be cut off and which Jesus himself says in John 15 will be thrown into the fire and burned. I command you to come to Jesus. If a stewardess stood up, the plane had somehow miraculously landed on the ocean, and the stewardess said, run to the door or walk to the door or carefully without hurting anybody, come to the door. Not one person here would be offended at her telling you to do that. Jesus said what? I am the door. And those who come in through this door will be saved. Are you going to come? Are you going to come? Or do you love your sin? Do you love your pride? What are you going to do with Jesus? You say, oh, there are other paths to heaven, you know. I say, no. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You say, oh, yeah, but, you know, that's the sort of nationalistic, racial superiority, Western, Northern Hemisphere, First World kind of ego trip. I say, no, it's not. It's Jesus. I didn't make it up. 
He's the one that said, you err, not knowing Scripture. I just quoted Scripture to you. You're going to come. One day, if you don't come, you will stand before the father of that son. And you know what? That father will not forgive you for despising the death of his only begotten son. Do you understand that? If you've ever had children, if you've ever loved anyone, you should understand that. If God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life, what do you think that he will do to those who despise the death and the blood of his son? If you do come with wickedness and vileness and pride pouring off of your arms and your legs and oozing out of your hair, If you come like that in that condition, what will he do with you? He'll look at you and he'll say, enter my kingdom, you righteous ones. Because why? Because you'll be dressed in the righteousness of his son. And he won't see your sin. He will see the righteousness of his son. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) For it is the power of God to all who believe. Amen.